0: And welcome to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Bart Gregory and Charlie Winfield, appreciate you hanging out with us for the next little bit. Well, last week we talked to Chris Young, bullpen coach for the Chicago Cubs. I tell you what, Charlie, here's the thing that uh, that we've learned, and not a lot of people really understand. When you start talking about the web of Mississippi State baseball in the baseball world. It really is. It's kind of a point of pride for everybody that's a Bulldog of saying, you know, let me tell you something. we got some people around, whether they're playing, whether they're in the coaching profession, that really have some stroke in the, in the baseball world. Absolutely. And, and Chris Young, one of
1: those guys who's done it on a high level, we tend to think about people who have played the game, but there's so many contributions being made to baseball as a whole by guys who played here. Chris Young's been a pitching coach for the Phillies. He's the bullpen coach for the Cubs. Really interesting to get to visit with guys doing it, not just playing, but from a different perspective.
0: And two guys we wanted to talk to today really may not have the big names that we think about when you start thinking about Bulldog history, but two guys who were very important in Mississippi State history. First on our look-back segment brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage, we're going to talk to Jim Robinson who played at State 88-90, to 90, split time with Barry Winford as a catcher in 88-89, and 89, and then in 1990 became the everyday catcher for Mississippi State on that College World Series team. Charlie, the thing when I think about Jim Robinson is he was almost like an iron man behind the plate. You go to
1: 1990, so you go from splitting time in 88-89, 1990, Mississippi State played 71 games. He started all 71 of them. I haven't gone back and looked in the record books. I can't imagine that happening since.
0: And the thing about Jim Robinson, now a scout with the Red Sox, he's been in scouting for a long time now. And he's scouted some great guys. He's got Clay Buckholtz up with the with the Red Sox, who threw a no hitter, and I think in his second game second ever. Second game ever. And he's a guy that's constantly around, and really gives you a lot of insight of what goes on in college baseball, and not just college baseball, but in high school baseball. Jim lives out in the Dallas Fort Worth area right now and scouts a lot of guys in that Texas area and in the southeast. But Jim really gives you some perspective about where scouting is now compared to where it was 10, 15 years ago.
1: Yeah, and a guy who's kind of done it at a high level as well. You know, talk about him being one of the best defensive catchers that Mississippi State has ever had. And there's something about being a catcher that just makes you ideal to be a scout. There's something about a catcher. They're just cerebral. They see everything in front of them. They have to understand opposing hitters. They have to understand their pitchers. They have to have a relationship with the umpire. There's just something about a catcher that seems to be ideal to be a scout.
0: And later in the show, we're going to talk to Dell Unser, who played at Mississippi State from 1964 to 1966. And one of the things and one of the requests that we've been getting is, hey, I wish you would really take a look back at some of those teams of Paul Gregory. And, Charlie, I can't wait to ask him some questions about Paul Gregory. We've talked so much about Ron Polk and Pat McMahon and John Cohen, but we haven't talked a whole lot about Paul Gregory. And to be honest with you, I get asked about 20 times a season, I'm not related to Paul Gregory, and I'm sure I'll be asked by Dell Unser about that. But Dell Unser – is one of the greatest Mississippi State players of all time played 15 years in the big leagues is a scout and was a scout with the Phillies organization for a long time but there's a guy who was very big in a big era of major league baseball
1: you and I love baseball guys we're not going to run into anybody who is a bigger baseball guy than Dale Lancer his dad was a professional baseball player his dad in fact was a teammate of Paul Gregory way back when And all of a sudden, Dale Unser makes his way down from Illinois to Mississippi State. He leads the SEC in home runs a couple of years. He's drafted about half a dozen times. Of course, they used to have more drafts per year than they do now. And he is a guy who had a 15-year career in the major leagues. And the big moment was in that 1980 World Series. 15 seasons. He goes to the postseason once. And coming off the bench as a pinch hitter, he goes 5-for-11. He has, I think, three doubles in the postseason that year. He had a big one to help beat Houston in the deciding game. And then, in a pivotal game, has a pinch-hit double to bring home Mike Schmidt the ninth. Phillies go on to win the World Series. And Dale Unser, a guy just one of five Mississippi State players to have a World Series ring.
0: You talk about that 1980 team with the Phillies, and if you talk to Phillies fans – They may tell you that that hit by Unser may have been the biggest of the World Series in 1980. And the reasoning was the Phillies won the first two, the Royals won the second two, and then they're in game five. They're down in the ninth inning, and Quisenberry. Yeah, Dan Quisenberry. Quisenberry's on the mound, the reliever of the year that year. I mean, Quisenberry was the big-time reliever for the Royals. And you have Mike Schmidt on at first base, and Unser pulls the ball right down the right field line. Schmidt's able to score. That ties the game. He actually scores the go-ahead run in the top of the ninth inning to win it. But that double, scoring Schmidt from first base, really changed the complexion because the Royals were about to go up three games to two, but all of a sudden it flipped, and now you can go back to Philadelphia, and they won the world championship the next day. And think about, of all the names on that team, And you go to Philadelphia,
1: Dale Unser is the one they remember. But you had Mike Schmidt, you had Pete Rose, you had Steve Carlton. Larry Boa. Tug McGraw was on that team. And if you don't know who Tug McGraw was, you would have back then. He was a relief pitcher. Tim McGraw's dad, the country music person. But there were so many big guys on that team, and it's grabbing a bat in the ninth after sitting there cold that Dale Unser goes in and basically has the pivotal at bat in that entire series.
0: And once again, we'd like to thank the fine folks at Farm Bureau. Go with a home team, our presenting sponsor, Farm Bureau, Henry Hamilton, and a gang of agents across the state of Mississippi. If anything happens, disaster happens, disaster strikes in your area, you want someone that you know that can come out and help you in any way get back on your feet and without doubt, the perfect people you can trust with your insurance needs is Farm Bureau. And when we come back, we'll have a look back at Bulldog history brought to you by Country Pleasing Sauces. Jim Robinson, Red Sox scout, played at Mississippi State from 1988 to 1990. He'll join us right here on Out of Left Field presented by Farm Bureau. And this week, our look back at Bulldog history presented by Country Pleasing. Uh, Jim Robinson played at Mississippi State, 1988 to 1990. And, you know, Jim, as a catcher, we, we've talked a good bit with Pat McMahon. We've talked to Steve Smith and in about those 89 and 90 teams. But what are your memories of catching guys like Bobby Reed, Tracy Jobs, Chris George, a young B.J. Wallace? He, he had a great pitching staff. What's your memories of catching those guys?
2: You know, I think probably the one thing that stands out amongst them all was the competitiveness. You know, some had better stuff than others. Uh, Bj was uh, certainly a guy, as reflected by his draft status and all that, that had you know really premium stuff. The other guys didn't match that, but uh, the competitiveness uh, in all of them, what really stands out wanting to wanting to perform, wanting to win and working to try to achieve that is the thing that I think uh, from from the top guy down to the last guy on the staff really is what I remember of it.
1: You know, Jim, we go back. You shared time in 88-89 with Barry Winford, and all of a sudden 1990 rolls around, that College World Series team that had that great run at the end of the year. 71 games, you start every one of them. I've always thought that putting on that gear and getting out there in the hot sun was probably one of the most demanding things that somebody could do, and you don't see many guys catch all three games in a weekend, much less all 71 in a season anymore. How did that impact your ability to perform at a top level through the end of the year, and do you think maybe we ought to do that more with guys now?
2: I always felt like uh, catching was a lot similar in regards to hitting, where you know, the more you were back there, the better you became. Even if you were beat up a little bit and, and maybe uh, tired over the course of a weekend, but just seeing pitches and being able to receive them, uh, just that felt like made me better back there. You know, I'm not sure why that why it's changed the way it has, and I I certainly agree with you as, as I'm out scouting and rarely, you know. Their their top prospect, the catcher, and he gets days off during the week and on the weekend. And I'm not really sure why that's happened, but regardless, back then we we pretty much had a set lineup, and uh, Coach Polk went with it every time, and just really relished the chance to go back there every day and and try to help the team and guide the pitcher through uh, through all nine innings.
0: You know, Jim, in 1988 and 1989, and we're talking with Jim Robinson, the bulldog catcher from 1988 to 1990, Pat McMahon here in 88, 89, and then we had the change to Joe Hudak as the pitching coach in 1990. So many times we talk to pitchers about the difference in styles of a pitching coach. How does the change of a pitching coach affect the catching position?
2: Yeah, Quite a bit because, um, like nowadays, I think the games are called much more from the dugout than they were back then. Uh, a little more responsibility was, was placed on the catcher and the pitcher in regards to reading swings and figuring out how we're going to attack this hitter. So just a little bit of a philosophy thing and just getting to know Coach Hudak and figuring out how we wanted to attack, what, what our game plan is. And that was just basically, we just needed some time to, to get together, you know, and, and uh, figure out how we wanted to do this. As opposed to Coach Mack, who we, uh, you know, he, those are some hard, some big shoes to fill for any pitching coach after he left, and uh, it was just a matter of us getting together and figuring out and getting a good flow. and And I can, I can tell you this with one hundred percent certainty. It was, and I remember like it was yesterday. We were playing Georgia at home, and it was Super Bulldog weekend, and they were beating the dog out of us. And um, first two games. And I remember we met after that, uh, after that Saturday game, second game with Coach Hudak. He and I, and, and there might have been some pitchers, but we talked about we've got to get a better flow to this game. We've got to let the pitchers go with what they want to throw. Let me guide them. You give me suggestions, and if you don't like it, we can talk about it and work on something different. But I personally and probably selfishly, I see that as really kind of a turning point for us on on the mound where from that point on, the games seemed like they were much crisper and faster and guys were throwing more strikes. and, And we, like you mentioned earlier, we really took off that last part of the year.
1: You know, you mentioned the idea of the way games are called. They seem to be called much more from the dugout than they used to be. You go to a weekend tournament and travel ball and kids 8, nine ten years old. And you see guys over there flashing signs and kids with wristbands on. Do you feel like maybe we'd be better off just even at very young ages telling a catcher, call the game, learn to do it, and maybe you'd see some better catcher development and not to mention better pitched games?
2: I think so. Um, I think that's a, a huge part of the, uh, the game and being a catcher is being able to I mean, you're using your pitcher's strengths to try to attack a hitter and his weaknesses and how he – nobody has a better vantage point than the catcher about where the pitch was, how the, how the hitter you know, approached it. Did he – you think he's shy on the ball inside? Things like that that are hard to read from the dugout. Okay, so you're basically just – well, because he swung and missed at a, a breaking ball. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean that that was a good pitch, or we should come right back with it. Uh, it's just, there's things you see and can can sense behind the plate that it's hard to pick up from the dugout. And I and I do I do agree with that theory that uh, because if you if you keep advancing and playing beyond college and into professional baseball, I mean that's what you're going to be charged with doing is calling a game and getting your pitchers through. Their outing and uh, trying to help them win. So I agree with that. That it's uh, it's kind of a becoming a lost start. Certainly at the lower, the younger kid level, where they just look over and put down a finger. They they really have no idea why they're why that pitch is being called.
0: Talking with Jim Robinson, and along those lines, Jim, you mentioned calling games and being cognizant of everything that goes on with a hitter. The thing about a catcher is you can see the entire field. It's the coach on the field. How do you think the calling the pitches and really studying at bats from batters has helped you now? You've been a scout for a long time. How, did you, how do you think that helped you transition from a player into a scouting role?
2: A lot of times I'm watching from the same perspective, right? I'm not on the field, but I'm behind the plate, uh, trying to take in the entire field as uh, as each as each pitch is thrown. so certainly has helped uh, in my development as a scout, uh, having you know being able to play a number of years uh, obviously in Mississippi State and then some professionally just being having that perspective and understanding why certain things happened and maybe. You know, a home run that a pitcher gave up that I'm scouting—it might not, might not have been a bad pitch. It was a bad, it was a bad pitch call, pitch selection, as opposed to location and things like that. I think it's—it's it's definitely helped me, and and something that I take a lot of pride in for sure.
0: And, Jim, how has scouting changed? I mean, how, you know, you, you started out a, a good many years ago, and now with the video that's out there, with the, the ability to, to, to watch just about every single game, even a high school player plays, how has scouting changed for you?
2: Yeah, it's, it's changed quite a bit. Um, you know, it, like you mentioned, the video access we have, uh, the data that's being provided a lot, most D1 schools and a lot of JCs and other all these events we attend in the summer, we have pitch data and, and exit velocity and things like that that the kids and, the, and a lot of the staffs are, are really buying into. So we've got to pay attention to that. But the one thing that still hasn't changed, and hopefully it never gets to this point, but there's nothing like being at the game, being around the field, being around the players, getting a sense of who's, who's the guy and who isn't, and watching with your eyes. And once you can get a good basis for that, and you're you're aware, and you do your work, that you can uh, you can start to separate the the pretenders from the real guys, and and uh, you know sign big leaguers. So I'm hoping it never gets to the point where we're not sending guys out to watch guys in person, live, see their pregame work, talk to the coaches about them, uh, seeing how they react and move. that's that's something you just can't capture uh, anywhere else but, but on the field.
1: A lot of discussion this year about the changes to the Major League Draft, a lot of discussion about whether there will even be Minor League Baseball played. In the shortened draft context, how does that change teams' approaches? Do you see it changing in Major League Baseball? You know, I would have to think that maybe in one year I'm willing to take a flyer on a guy and maybe see a guy who projects. Do I need, if I'm a major league GM, do I need to be a little more cautious this year and think I really want to go after the college guy that I've just got a bigger book on?
2: I think there's some truth to that. You know, uh, it's obviously the the kids that we, we we do a lot of work in the summer, so that's a really big part of our process. Seeing the high school kids in the summertime and against really good competition, but but not having a chance to see a lot of them in the spring because they're season. Certainly the colder weather kids who never really even got started. It's going to take uh, it's going to take a lot to, to, to pull that trigger. So the guys that you're most comfortable with, the guys that you've got a lot of history with, the guys that have performed at a high level, are probably the guys that are going to be. Where in front of offices and draft rooms where they're going to feel most most safe with. And I, I still think the draft is going to go where the, the best kids are still going to go. They're high schoolers or college. But you're not going to see some of these high school kids that maybe if, would get stuffed into the first five rounds in years past because you have 35 more rounds beyond it. I think those guys are the guys that are going to miss out, and uh, it's unfortunate. But I know if I was making the final call, that would be it. Would it would be a lot to have for me to have to take that guy in those positions without seeing them this spring and, and getting a you know, like I said, being around them and and making sure they're healthy and, and nothing has changed physically. With
0: Talking with Jim Robinson, scout with the Red Sox, and. This was going to be the 30-year anniversary of that College World Series team in 1990, and I guess one of the things that scouting allows you to do is to travel, to possibly come back more than some of the other guys to Mississippi State. And One of the things when you talk about baseball guys, the camaraderie that a team has, it just seems to me like even though it's been a little bit of time now, that you guys as a team from 88 to 90 are still pretty close.
2: Yeah, there's, uh, there's some group chats going, um, group me's, things like that, that we can, uh, that we still uh, still communicate with. I'm probably a little further away than most of the other guys. It seems like there's a lot of guys that are closer together, and maybe run into each other a little bit more frequently at football games and, and things of that nature. But yeah, it was, it was a shame that uh, all this happened. I was really looking forward to getting together with all the guys and, I've seen quite a few of them over the years coming back, Um, but a lot of them I haven't, and I was really looking forward to seeing those guys and sharing a laugh and and, uh, rekindling some old memories.
0: Well, we look forward to seeing you the next time you're on campus. We really appreciate you taking your time out today. I know it's a busy time for you with the draft looming in the next couple of months, but we appreciate you taking some time with us.
2: You got it, guys. Thanks for having me on.
0: And that's Jim Robinson. Catcher for state from 1988 to 1990, and this look back at Boulevard history brought to you by our good friends at Country Pleasing Sausage. Country Pleasing located on Highway 49 down in Florence, just past Jerry's Fish House on the left. Here's the big igloo, and then right past that, just to the south, is Country Pleasing Sausage. Go in their storefront; they've got all kind of pork and beef and anything you need for your tailgating. But if you're in a grocery store, if you're in Kroger or Vowels or anywhere in the state of Mississippi, make sure you go by and get some of the original country pleasing sausage, some jalapeno cheddar. Matt Wyatt loves that the onion. The green onion. That's some good stuff as well. Country pleasing, without doubt, the best sausage is made right here in Mississippi. And so go check them out. And they always bring our look back segment, and it's always brought to you by country pleasing sausage well when we come back we'll talk to a former bulldog played here in the mid-1960s enjoyed a 15-year career in the major leagues and that's Dell unser he joins us on the other side of the break you're listening to out of left field presented by farm bureau And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. It's time now for our guest line segment, brought to you each week by our good friends at Heartland Catfish. Heartland, producing the best farm-raised catfish in America, located just west of Greenwood. And each week we feature a great restaurant that's supplied by Heartland that specializes in phenomenal catfish dishes. And this week we stay local in Greenwood. Heartland doesn't have far to deliver this, It's the Crystal Grill in downtown Greenwood. Well, you know, there aren't many places that make Jen and me want to get in the car, drive away from Starkville, go for a fantastic dinner. But a few times a year, we load up the friends. We make the short drive to Greenwood to eat at the Crystal Grill. And I've had their catfish several times. You can get it fried, blackened, broiled, or lemon peppered if there's one thing I could say about the Crystal Grill, I've never had anything but an exceptional dining experience. It just seems the catfish makes that coconut pie with that mile-high moraine that much better. So this weekend, when you're trying to figure out what to venture to, make the Crystal Grill in Greenwood a part of your plans. And once again, this is brought to you by our good friends at Heartland Catfish. Now let's go to the Heartland Hotline and former Bulldog Del Unser joins us. Played at Mississippi State 1964 to 1966. And, Mr. Unser, we really appreciate you joining us.
3: Well, it's good to to, uh, be back there a little bit. We have gotten back there to uh, a couple of reunions over the years, and it's been a lot of fun.
0: Well, Mr. Unser, Del Unser, played 1964 to 1966. Growing up in Illinois, and we asked this question a good bit of former players. How did you end up from – east central Illinois to east central Mississippi.
3: Just after I graduated high school, my dad had come down to see one of his old teammates, Paul Gregory, and check on uh, availability and and whatever as a possible scholarship opportunity for me, uh, who at that time was doing more pitching than I was hitting or uh, outfield or first base or anything. So at any rate, we we wanted to go see the campus and, and take a look around and had a meeting with Paul Gregory and he told my dad, who, by the way, had eight kids, so so uh, he he wasn't uh, in any hurry to to pay a whole lot of tuition and everything. So uh, Paul Gregory said, "Well, we'll give him a one year shot, and if he doesn't work out, Al, my dad, he says we uh, maybe can find something for him to do in the clubhouse and stuff." And of course, my dad was a minor league manager off and on and a and a, and a scout. So and he says. Dell's done all that clubhouse stuff, you know, in, in the minor league, shine shoes and done laundry and all that stuff. So either way, it looks like it might work out. So that's how it all got started. And then, then I came down there. I took a bus ride down to Starkville and and uh, had two two little double bags, and I was off to my freshman year.
1: <laughs> you mentioned a guy that we know as just kind of a legend around Mississippi State, obviously. Mississippi State fans of more recent years are familiar with John Cohen and Pat McMahon, Ron Polk. Tell us a little bit about Paul Gregory. He won four SEC championships. You were right in the middle of the first two of those. What was Paul Gregory like as a coach?
3: He was a um, he was quiet. He'd go around uh, at practices and and uh, mention a few things, and he'd have me. Thrown on the sidelines, pitching and stuff, and making a couple of comments here and there. But he wasn't a stand over you and make sure you did it type guy. He said, "This is, you know, this is the way we do it." And and then he had a, a good assistant coach, a very very energetic guy named Tom Diarmi, who was kind of. Um, I mean, he he was the active fungo hitter and everything else. Because Paul, Paul Gregory would hit some fungos too, but but Tom was was a very take charge guy and made sure we did cutoffs and relays and and all the basic fundamentals. And and when it came time to turn me from a first baseman into an outfielder, he worked my butt off and made me better than I otherwise would have been. Uh, so it was a good combination of uh, Paul Gregory made up the lineups. He he, uh, he knew who could play. He knew matchups. He knew he knew an awful lot about the game of baseball. You know, having pitched in the big leagues and and some uh, in the Pacific Coast League, where a lot of the big league players went because they could make more money, including my dad for four years uh, as a catcher. So he and Paul knew each other from way back.
0: You know, you mentioned a name right there. We're talking with Dell Unser, played at Mississippi State, nineteen sixty four to nineteen sixty six, back to back SEC championships under Paul Gregory in sixty five and sixty six. Enjoyed a fifteen year career in the major leagues and. You mentioned Tom Diarmi So many times when I've heard stories about Tom Diarmi, and it's very interesting what you just said about Coach Gregory, about how he was kind of the, the laid back of the two. Tom Diarmi was very cognizant of every single thing that went on with that program, very similar to what Ron Polk and Pat McMahon were back in the 1980s. But they said that Tom Diarmi was as good as anybody in the country at getting a field ready to play. Said he was one of the best groundskeepers you've ever seen of taking care of a field.
3: Yeah, he was, he did it all. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, my, our junior and senior year, uh, they were just clearing the ground for your field right there, uh, the Duty Noble Field. We had to play in Columbus. So my little work program that I got part of my scholarship is we would go over and we would do some ground keeping work on the uh, trying to build the actual playing field for the, for the future teams. We never got to play on it.
0: <laughs> you brought up a good point. Playing that junior and senior season at Redbird Park over in Columbus, and that uh, first year on the south side of Scott Field where Dorman Hall is located right now that that old ballpark, that old field where Dorman Hall now is what was it like playing in the center of campus just south of Scott Field?
3: Well, it was it was it was neat. Uh, my sophomore year, I hurt my elbow pitching late in that season I got I, I came back and played a little first base because I couldn't uh, get my arm up to throw over the top but it was a uh, a friendly park and a, you know the kids from campus could just walk right in it was right in the middle of everything by the old armory there and uh, we had some uh, some guys you know they say well uh, Butch Estriggs you know he used to hit them over up on top of that metal barn and this and you know it was uh, kind of interesting there was a, there was a lot of tradition there and then Frank Montgomery wheeled some great games. When I was a freshman, he was a senior. Of course, the freshman couldn't play. But Coach Gregory would keep me around uh, the, the varsity team to throw batting practice to him because I was left-handed and there weren't many left-hand pitchers. So, so that gave him some reps against left-handers.
1: You look back at those 65 and 66 seasons, you won the back-to-back SEC titles and some of the names as I was looking back through the record books just kind of jump out at you is guys that are still remembered at Mississippi State. You think of a Frank Patera, you think of James Carroll and Ken Tatum and you know Mike Burns. Uh, You know I saw a game where I think it was maybe James Carroll who pitched a fourteen inning game. You score the winning run in the game you're playing. It's Kenny Stabler. At Alabama. Yeah. How it? <laughs>
3: the left hander? Actually Mike Burns was one heck of a ball player and he could he could run, he could he could play the heck out of the outfield and, and he was a three hundred hitter. Um, and, and not only that, just a great person. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. And uh, it was just a, he and Martha were were, were great people. But yeah, you know, we we had a, a team full of guys that could do a lot of things. We, we had speed. We had pitching. We had depth of pitching. We had a, a lot of a lot of good pitchers on the team. Uh, Claude Pasto and and of course Tatum was the ace. And uh, Frank Chambers had come in to close it down. Oftentimes, and Dick Jarboe would come in there, and no left-hander could ever hit him, and nothing ever got through Don Bell at shortstop. He was phenomenal. There's Wayne Meadows. uh, It was my junior year, and and Bill Bacon came in at second base. After that, Uh, we we just had a a good depth of uh, guys that could could not just catch the ball, but they could hit. You know, and pretty much up and down the lineup.
0: Talking with Dell Unser, played at State sixty four to sixty six, and uh, you were drafted several times before you actually signed a big league contract. What kept you at Mississippi State and turning down the pros as many times as you did?
3: Well, there's a couple of things. We had well, our junior year that was really good, and then we get beat in Gastonia, and, and that left a, a, a sour taste in our mouths, and I really wanted to come back because everybody was coming back. Pittsburgh drafted me in the wintertime at the double-A level, which would have been the third round. And, and then uh, the following spring, uh, Minnesota drafted me, and I, I went up after my junior year to play in the Basin League uh, in South Dakota in the summertime. I pitched and played the outfield up there. And Minnesota wanted to sign me at the end of that season. A boy named Freddie Glass from Alabama and I were on that team, and we went into Minnesota and worked out with them. And they offered me um, – well, back then I think it was like twenty five thousand in the third round, which was good money back then because the draft had started and all the all the big bonuses, you know, were cut out. So I went back, and my brother at that time was in Vietnam, and he says, "You better get your butt playing baseball and go back to school." He says, "One of us doing this is enough. <laughs> <laughs> if, if if you join the service, I'm going to kick your butt." Type <laughs> of type of big brother talk. And so I stayed in school, and and uh, my my high school sweetheart and myself uh, get married, in in the uh, the winter of my senior year, and and come back, and one thing led to another. I, I get drafted in the first round by the Washington Senators after after going to center field. Gary Wash, I was playing first base my junior year, and Gary Washington came in here and swung the bat good. He didn't play anywhere but first, so I was going to look for another job. So. I, Tommy Armey got me accustomed to center field, and I'd played it before, but uh, not with the intensity that he made me go get it. <laughs> and so, uh, at any rate, I was drafted as a center fielder um, by the Senators, on an expansion team. The rest is kind of history. It was uh, it was a, a wonderful opportunity and and uh, the right place at the right time. I got up there after a year and a half in the minor leagues and and played center field for them.
0: And we're talking with Dell Unser. We'll step away and come back. We'll talk about that big league career. He played at State 1964 to 1966. Back with more on Out of Left Field presented by Farm Bureau. him we're tied del unser again comes through a big base hit this time between akins and the bag
1: he has been outstanding for how many years now tom coming into the clutch
0: sitting on that bench call and what you heard right there was a ninth inning double a game-tying double Dell unser who we're talking with knocking in mike schmidt in game five of the 1980 world series and I know that was a big moment for you in your career. You talked about being drafted by the Washington Senators. What are some of those big memories you had in that 15-year career in the major leagues?
3: Well, you know, uh, the first game, uh, usually there's a presidential opening there in Washington, D.C., and, and uh, Tricky Dick Nixon, they, you know, uh, was one of the years he throws out the first pitch, and and all those types of things and those are those are memorable i even got to eat down in the senate dining room because senator stennis was an msu fan and he was head of the armed services committee there and those are exciting times and, and the guy that did it was our, our tennis player matt cameron from mississippi state We we stayed in contact over the years uh, and, and he said, "Would you like to have lunch with Senator Stenerson?" <laughs> so that was—I uh, thoroughly enjoyed that. And uh, but you know, big moments there. Um, uh, playing for Ted Williams for three years, especially the first year he came on in 1969, which is my second year with the with the Senators. And I hit 230 my first year. I was hitting real good for about half a season, and and it caught up with me. And they figured me out, but I didn't figure them out. And then, so the next year. He uh, he was he was brilliant at reading pitchers and knowing what they're going to throw and and uh, uh, analyzing him and, and I really learned a lot from him and then of course later in my career I played outfield center field most of all the time for the first eight or nine years and then I played all the outfield positions in first base and then the mo- the less I started playing every day after about ten years in the big leagues the the better I got at pinch hitting and uh, and I could always play defense whether it was first base or the outfield so. In 1979, I had three straight pinch hit home runs. That had to be a memorable thing because it was a major league record. Nobody had ever done it before. And um, in consecutive pinch hit appearances. And the third one was off of Raleigh Fingers to win the game. Uh, And I never hit one to center field since college almost. And and I I hit one off of him to center field because I wasn't a big power hitter. But um, that was exciting. And then after all the years that I played – I'd never been on a World Series team, and and in 1980 we win our division, and then we go play Houston, which was a gut wrenching playoff in the Astrodome, where it's probably the loudest noises I've ever heard in my life. You know, their fans were crazy, and of course the Philly fans were always nuts, and uh, it was just a very exciting series. and went back and forth, and back and forth, and extra innings, and then and I was fortunate enough to. Get a chance to have a couple of good games, pinch hitting, and then staying in the game and get another hit to, in Game Five, and then we go to the World Series with Kansas City and get some big hits off Quisenberry, who was a relief pitcher of the year. Kind of, it was a mag, it was really a magical year, and, and that they, you know, it's something very nice at the end of a lot of years of trying to do it, and then finally getting to do
1: it. You know, there are guys in Major League history, you think back to maybe a Rusty Staub who was a guy known for being a pinch hitter. At the back part of your career, that kind of became your role much more than every day player was the pinch hitter. And I've always thought that there isn't much tougher to do in sports than to hit a Major League fastball. I would think it has to be that much harder to sit there for eight innings and then come turn around a major league fastball for a double how was it that you were able to be so successful as a pinch hitter on the back half of your career
3: well i think i actually played with rusty in uh, new york and he was a pinch hitter then and I, I i would sit on the bench with with him at times and he would say look 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 he'd just whisper something to me you see what he's doing you see what he's doing where he's stepping he's stepping in his windup. He steps way back when he throws his fastball and he shortens it up when he throws a curveball or he's over the top more with a curveball and he's out there three quarters with a fastball. I mean, all these little things that he'd be, he'd be wishing, he didn't want to tell everybody, you know, because then all of a sudden it'll get back to that pitcher. But he'd whisper stuff to you and and, uh, you better, you better listen, you know. Ted Williams would say, you know, this guy's 60-40 curve or, or this guy's, you know, some of us couldn't hit like that, but I mean, the point he was making a lot of times was, oh, this guy's got an awesome curveball. He says, yeah, he's got an awesome curveball. He hasn't thrown one strike with it this whole game. He says, so why are you looking for it? You're looking for something you can't hit, or, or he's going to get ahead with you with a fastball, and you better, by golly, be ready for it. Those types of thoughts over the years, and, and then Nellie Fox helping me with my bunting and stuff and the short game things, and if you have to get a guy over, if you have to get on base to start an inning. Um, I used to do that a lot. The first five or six years I played in the big leagues. Um, and there's there so many people along the way. The guy that probably promoted me biggest uh, was after after hitting two twenty and two thirty, they jumped me into Double A out of the big out of uh, Mississippi State in New York, Pennsylvania. And I was just over my head. I had a bat that I couldn't hardly bench press, and I shouldn't have been swinging it. But anyway. We go to instructional league after I hit two twenty and I hit two thirty and I had one home run. And uh, Harry Walker with Houston, no less, is uh, we're sharing a team, an instructional league team with Houston. So he's he's teaching Houston guys and, and Washington Senators guys, and he got me choking up on a bat and going to left field, and and I led the league down there and hitting the next year. I'm the center fielder for the Senators, and that's how quick it can happen. So all these people along the way. Billy DeMars helped me with my swing. I'd, I'd start I'd start trying to uh, lift the ball and, and pull it and stuff, and he'd get me back on the tee, and I'd be hitting line drives up the middle and and um, have my stroke back. And we did that until the last day of the season in 1980 uh, when uh, uh, we were playing Houston. We'd go down in the tunnel, he says, what, this is the last day of the year? I said, I don't feel right. So we went down there in the tunnel, and we started hitting balls, and by, college, by the end of the game, I felt great. And uh, was lucky enough to get a couple of hits.
0: Talking with Dell Unser, and you mentioned some of those guys. We talk about a Nelly Fox and a Rusty Staub, and we talk about those teammates at Mississippi State playing 15 years in the big leagues. You played with some big name guys, and you talk about Staub, but a Pete Rose, a Mike Schmidt. Does Does anyone really stand out who was just really on a different level as far as their work ethic on and off the field?
3: Well, Carlton off the field. Was almost sick with his with his kung fu uh, exercises with a guy named Gus Heffling, who was a martial arts master, I guess. And uh, he he had his own regimen. He never ran. He was just in there kicking and uh, doing all kinds of exercises. Uh, Mike Schmidt was one of the more gifted athletes I think I'd ever seen, defensively, offensively, of course. Five hundred plus home runs and and uh, gold gloves at third base. Um, but we had a whole team of all-stars, Bob Boone, Larry Bola, Manny Trio, Pete Rose at first. Pete, Pete went out to beat you every day. He went out to get as many hits as he possibly could. And, and here, here I am in, in Philadelphia, I, I'm backing up outfield in first base, and he never wanted to come out of a game. I always wanted to get in late in the game just to get a little action, but he never wanted to come out of a game. He wanted to get another hit. <laughs> That's how you get that many hits, I guess. But he, he had a lot of enthusiasm.
1: You know, it's interesting when players make the transition from being on the field to being a coach. You had uh, a time as the hitting coach for the Phillies. I wonder how much did you call upon guys like Ted Williams and the instruction that you had gotten from them? How much did you call upon those experiences as you were the hitting coach at the major league level?
3: Well, yeah, some of the drills from Billy DeMars and, and Ted Williams' way to break down a pitcher, and, and what he's doing, uh, the actual mechanics of the swing, a little more from Billy Morris. Dad never talked about swing mechanics. He says, oh, you're in the big leagues, and everybody's got a decent swing. Yeah. But he still, if, if you have his, bat, uh, his book, My Turn at Bat, uh, it gives you a pretty good uh, thing on hitting mechanics and the reason why you was he was he was before his time. Now everybody's talking about uppercutting and, and lofting and hitting the ball apart. Well, he, he, he liked the five degree uppercut even back then, because that's the angle at which the ball was coming from the pitcher who was higher up than you. You know, so it, it all made very good sense and and his stuff was hey here it is take it or leave it. <laughs> he wasn't going to coddle you.
0: And then as your time working with the Phillies you know, as a scout and in player development, uh, I start thinking of guys like Jimmy Rollins, Scott Rowland, who you played a big part of their player development. What makes a guy like Jimmy Rollins and a guy like Scott Rowland, what, what makes them what they are?
3: I, I th- a lot of times, not not always for sure, but I think they both had good parents. To begin with, and then both of them are coming out of high school. Uh, Scott Rowland would have been by far a high number one pick if he had intimated that he was going to sign, But everybody thought he was going to go to college. Our scout in the Chicago area, you know, just kept after him, kept after him, and uh, found out that, you know, he might sign. So we took him in the second round and signed. And then Jimmy Rollins, he, he never knew a challenge that he couldn't meet. He was five foot seven. <laughs> Little little body put together pretty well even as a little little kid. But he he had he had moxie. He would stick his head in the coach's room and and uh, they would be teasing him and he'd be teasing them right back. You know, and he's seventeen, right out of high school, and he'd do it respectfully. He didn't do it negatively, but and you just knew he had some spark in him. You know, we always tried to make him bunt and hit the ball the other way, but uh, uh, he did it some. He could do it if he wanted to, but he you know he had a lot of home runs later on too but he was a great shortstop very sure-handed a good teammate a good person
1: you've seen a lot of baseball a career that's what more than 50 years i would guess or right at it how do you yep. see the game of baseball today where do you, we talk a lot at, or you hear people on tv talking about the health of the game where do you see the health of the game of baseball today
3: well I, you know a couple of problems i think with with the marketing or the actual ticket taking uh, it's it's incredibly expensive for a family of four to go to a ball game, and and I um, thank goodness a lot of it's on TV, and there's great TV contracts, and uh, if you're a big market team, they're unbelievably good. But there's there's still the the corporate entities uh, with their super boxes and their box seats and everything are are uh, keeping baseball in the money but I I sure wish they could do more uh, on the marketing end uh, to get families as interested as they they used to be. I know in in the town of Philadelphia, I mean, there are great-grandparents, grandparents, grandparents, dads, and kids that they've got got memorabilia hanging on their walls for almost a century, and uh, they're really into the game, and uh, their families are into the game. Uh, I'd like to see some of that come back. I'd like to see the game played without the emphasis solely on the home run. There. people, there, It was an embarrassment in my day to strike out. They don't care about striking out today. They just uh, You get paid to hit home runs and, and uh, drive in runs. But uh, you also get paid to win games to score a run and make a run when you have to make it at the end of the game and uh, be able to handle the bat, to, to uh, move a runner, to hit behind the runner, to hit and run, which they don't do.
1: I think that's one of the reasons Bart and I are such big fans of college baseball, because you still see a lot of that, hey, man on second, Absolutely. nobody out. Let's ground one to second base.
3: Absolutely. And, yeah, and, and then you might accidentally get an RBI. But um, that part of the game bothers me. Um, the money bothers me to the extent, uh, well, a couple of reasons. It's kind of unreal. When we, when we played, I think hockey's still together pretty much as a team unit. Uh, when we played, you know, the guys would eat together. They'd go out together. They did a lot of stuff together. And uh, unfortunately today, when the team's on the road, they got their limos picking them up. They got their entourages with them. They got this and that. And, uh, probably a little more prevalent in basketball than baseball, but baseball for sure. It's kind of unfortunate that they're not as maybe cohesive uh, as they used to be. And uh, I mentioned this, and <laughs> four, four of the uh, hockey players today For the Coyotes here, I I played golf over a place called Greyhawk out here where I do an annual thing. These four guys were just having a blast. And that's the way we used to do it, you know, go out and play golf together and have a couple beers together, whatever. Uh, I don't think they do that as much anymore.
0: Hey, Mr. Hunter, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And it's always great to talk with Bulldog Greats, and it was a lot of fun to talk to you today.
3: Well, I hope to get back down there and see you guys.
0: Come on anytime. Oh wow! How great that is to talk to Dell Unser. To talk about names like Ted Williams, Pete Rose, and so many of those guys on that Phillies teams, and Rusty Staub. Man, you talk about a look back at some baseball history with that interview with Dell Unser. So that'll do it for another week here on Out of Left Field. We appreciate you joining us once again. We're brought to you by our good friends at Farm Bureau. And until next week, for Charlie Winfield, I'm Bart Gregory saying so long. You've been listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau.